where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, only in his hometown and in his own house is a prophet without honor. And he did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. This is the gospel of Christ. Praise to Christ the word. Great. Thank you very much, Vic. Good morning, everybody. Great to see you here. Uh, If you've got a Bible or a device with a Bible on it and you want to keep that in front of you, we'll be jumping around a little bit uh, to help us understand this passage, but we'll be spending most of our time in those verses and they'll be on the screen, so you can just use that if that's easier for you. Uh, Let's pray together that God would help us to understand his word. Our Father, we thank you for this lovely day and we thank you that it's another day that we can spend knowing you because you have spoken to us. Father, we pray now that as we turn our attention to these words that you would give us minds that are ready to understand and hearts that are eager to obey. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I thought we would begin this morning by talking about maybe the greatest movie ever made, Back to the Future. This is, this is not one of those movies where you say who's seen it. This is one of those movies where you say who hasn't seen it and you shame people. Who's not seen Back to the Future and is willing to... Gosh, one hand is too many for that movie. It's fantastic. Um, find it and watch it. It's brilliant. Uh, Marty McFly travels from 1985 to 1955 and he has to help his, his own parents meet and fall in love and then he has to figure out how to get back to 1985 It's a brilliant movie for so many reasons, but I think the biggest reason is very simple. The concept of time travel is just so compelling, so fascinating. I I personally, I'm a total sucker for any stories about time travel, and I think it's because they invite you to consider that question, what if? What if? What if I really could travel back in time? Where would I go? What would I do? What mistake would I fix? What warnings would I give? What historical event would I want to witness? And I'm sure that most of us at one time or another have thought about those questions. In fact, I reckon in a room like this, full of mostly Christians, if we did a survey and we asked that last question, what period in history would you like to go back to? I think there is one answer that would overwhelmingly be given. It would be surely first century Palestine, wouldn't it? because you would want to walk and talk with Jesus. In fact, if we were playing that game and I said, tell me the time in history you want to travel to, I think I'd have to add, and you can't say first century Palestine, because it would just be too boring otherwise. It's something that I think fascinates Christians, but, but not just Christians. What an amazing thing it would be to walk with Jesus, to talk with Jesus, to listen to him, to see him in action. Surely you've imagined that. And I think one of the reasons that's such a tantalising idea for Christians is we think, if I had that experience, surely all of my doubts would disappear. Surely some of the struggles that I have in the Christian life would just melt away. Because if I saw the man with my own eyes, if I heard those words coming out of his mouth, if I saw him doing those miraculous things, I could never doubt again. And I would be able to reach new heights of commitment and godliness in my life. Or maybe you've heard 
someone who's not a Christian yet saying those kind of sentiments. I've certainly heard this. People say, well, you know, I'm struggling to believe, I can't buy this whole thing, but if I'd been there, if I'd been there where Jesus was, then I, then I would believe, because I just need to see it for myself. You've heard that kind of sentiment that people have expressed? But is it true? If we could borrow Marty McFly's DeLorean and we could travel back to AD 30 and get ourselves over to Palestine, would those things happen for us? Would we suddenly come back 10% more godly and more committed than we were before? Should we take all that time we're putting into Bible study and instead put it into developing time travel technology? Friends, the answer is an emphatic no. No. There is no evidence that walking with Jesus and talking with Jesus would make you more committed, more godly, or more likely to have faith than you are now. And this passage, this passage we're looking at today, is one of the clearest examples anywhere in the Gospels that when it comes to Jesus, knowing more about him does not necessarily equal having faith in him. In fact, it's entirely possible that familiarity breeds contempt when it comes to Jesus. And so this is a vital passage. It helps us to consider some of the very real dangers of thinking we know things about Jesus, but also helps us to consider what it is that Jesus actually expects from us, what he actually demands from us. It's an important transition point in Matthew's unfolding biography, as we'll see, but it's also a stark warning. A stark warning, don't be like those who thought they knew Jesus. Don't be like people who thought they had a handle on him, but who actually had domesticated him and who had missed the point even though the truth was right there staring them in the face. So, this passage we're looking at comes at the end of uh, chapter 13 of Matthew's Gospel. I think it's kind of a hinge in the unfolding Gospel. Uh, Chapter 13, as you'll know, if you've been here in recent weeks as we've gone through, is a series of parables. So, it's Jesus teaching, uh, and we've been working through them together. Uh, And this is, I I think, uh, sort of a, a hinge between that section, which is, actually goes right back to chapter 11. So chapter 11, 12, 13 of Matthew, it's one of the long sections in the Gospel that really focuses on Jesus' words, Jesus' teachings. And then this is kind of a hinge into a section where Matthew starts to focus not just on Jesus saying things, but on Jesus doing things, and very much focusing on the idea of opposition to Jesus, on the hostility he faced, on the questions about who he was that he faced, on the way that people opposed him. And Jesus, uh, for, for the parables, he's been in Capernaum, which was sort of to, to the north of the Sea of Galilee. If you've got any picture in your mind of that region, Sea of Galilee's there. Capernaum's up here. And then Nazareth, where he travels, his hometown, is out here to the, to the west, or the, to the east, to the west. That way. <laughs> that way from how you're looking at it. Should have written it down. So he's gone back to his hometown. And you'd expect, with all the things he's been doing, you'd expect a hero's welcome. You'd expect that he's going to be just greeted with open arms. But the greeting is not exactly heroic. And as we look at this, there's two key words that sum up the response to Jesus. The first one is amazement. Look again with me here in our passage, verse 54. Coming to his hometown, Jesus began teaching the people in their synagogue, and they were amazed. Now, that sounds very positive, 
But Matthew has used the word amazed several times up to this point to describe people reacting to Jesus. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 7, again in chapter 8, again in chapter 9, it's a common response to seeing him teach and seeing him do things. But the problem is, it's not joined with faith. And as impressive as it sounds, it is not the response that Jesus is looking for. Because, I mean, you can understand this, can't you? It's, it's possible to be amazed by somebody in some way, but to have that amazement make no difference to your actual life. You know, you, you might go to the circus one day and you, you're driving home and you, you're thinking about, oh, we saw this amazing tightrope walker or a lion tamer or a guy juggling chainsaws or whatever it might be, and you say, that was amazing. What should we have for lunch? It just doesn't have anything to do with your life. But that is not the kind of amazing things that Jesus does. When Jesus speaks, it is not like you watch a TED talk and feel a little bit smarter for a few minutes and then forget what you've heard. When Jesus does miracles, it is not like a circus trick. Jesus speaks and Jesus acts with the authority of God himself. It is a confronting kind of action. And to see Jesus and to hear him was a very uncomfortable experience for many of the people who were there. And it it disturbed their sense of peace, disturbed their equilibrium, made those demands on them. And so, as we see in the passage, the amazement gives way to something quite different. Look again here, second part of verse 54. They say, where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Verse 55, isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? Aren't his brother's names James, Joseph, Simon and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get these things? Now, it's, it's a useful little passage because it gives us some early information about, uh, some information about Jesus' earthly life, which we're interested in. We learn that he was the son of a carpenter, which almost certainly means he was a carpenter. We learn that he had brothers and sisters, which, contrary to what some people would tell you, means that Mary, his mother, did not remain forever a virgin. That was only when he was born. So we get these little glimpses into Jesus' backstory. But what we really see here the reason Matthew records these questions is to show us people who could not and would not change their perspective on Jesus. Now, in one sense, you can understand that, right? I think, oh, I remember Jesus when he was just a little nipper running around up the back of church. You know, look at him now. Isn't he a carpenter? I mean, he's just a woodworker. And now he's up there giving these talks. He didn't go to university. He's never written a book. He's not part of the intelligentsia. He's just one of us. I mean, here in Nazareth, we're simple folk. People say nothing good comes out of Nazareth. That's us. Who does he think he is? See, it is sometimes hard when you've known somebody for a long time to accept what they might grow into. But there's something much more specific going on here because that can happen to us, can't it? This is more specific to Jesus. Matthew is showing us a a picture of spiritual blindness, a picture of spiritual blindness that affected so many of the people who saw Jesus, who walked with him, who were there with him. See, friends, these are people who had access to those things that we might dream of, those things we might fantasise about, people who had access to to more of those direct, in-your-face realities about Jesus than anybody else has ever had. 
but they looked at him and they couldn't see it. Or they wouldn't see it. Those, those human ways of understanding Jesus prevented them from seeing what was really going on. And so in the end, even though they were amazed, their real response is recorded in the damning words of verse 57. Look what it says. They took offence at him. They took offence at him. That, that word, it's just one Greek word, the word translated there, took offence. It's a very important word in Matthew's Gospel. It's literally the word that gives us scandal. It's saying they were scandalised by him. Let me just take a minute here. I want to show you a few places in Matthew where this word shows up so you can get an idea of the full force of what he's describing here. This isn't just kind of, oh, I didn't really care for that sermon, not, not my cup of tea. This is something more. Uh, chapter 5, verse 29. If your right eye causes you to stumble, same word, gouge it out. If your right hand causes you to stumble, same word, cut it off. Heaven and hell are at stake. You get the point? Chapter 11, verse 6. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble, same word, on account of me. Back earlier in chapter 13, in the parable of the sower, uh, Jesus speaks about the seed that falls on rocky soil, and then he says, verse 21, but since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes away because of the word, they quickly fall away, stumble, take offence, same word. Again, heaven and hell are at stake. In chapter 18, the word is picked up. Uh, three times it's used in chapter 18. If anyone causes one of these little ones to stumble, it would be better to have a large millstone tied around his neck and be thrown into the sea. When you stumble over Jesus, when you take offence at Jesus, heaven and hell are at stake. Remember, Jay spoke to us about that last week, the reality of heaven and hell that we don't find pleasant but we can't get around because Jesus speaks about it. That's what's at stake when you take offence at Jesus. And we might logically think Peter, one of the, the chosen followers of Jesus, was there watching all of this happen. He wrote the same thing later in one of his letters. He described Jesus like this. He said, a stone that causes people to stumble to take offence. That's how he saw Jesus, as the stone that causes people to take offence and a rock that makes them fall. To take offence at Jesus, to be scandalised by Jesus, is the most serious mistake anyone can ever make. And Matthew wants us to see that. He wants us to see that just being there, just being there in the presence of Jesus, hearing those words, seeing him do things, none of that is a guarantee of faith. It might just mean that you harden your heart and you fail to see what is in front of you instead of recognising the power of God that is at work. The great theologian John Calvin in the 16th century said this, It is not mere ignorance that hinders people, but that of their own accord they search after grounds of offence to prevent them from following the path to which God invites. They search after grounds of offence. I wonder if you can identify with that. I wonder if you can see any glimpse of that in your own heart as you think about Jesus and the demands that he makes on us. Because one of the things about Jesus is that 
for all of his majesty and all of his authority and all of his perfection, he presents himself to us in a way that we have to decide what we're going to do with that. That it is possible for us to say, I'm going to take offence at Jesus and be scandalised by him. And that's not because of anything that's deficient in him, of course. It's because of what's deficient in us, isn't it? That in our sinfulness, we can, we can find a barrier to Jesus. We can find reasons to keep him at arm's length. We can find those excuses. And for these people that we read about here, it was memories of Jesus' childhood and, and not being able to see past those things. But it can be anything, can't it? And the truth is, today, right here in Christchurch, 21st century, today, we live in an age where most people if they know anything about Jesus, will find something in him that leads them to take offence, to decide that he is not for them. We're told a lot these days, and I I think this is absolutely true for all kinds of reasons, we're told a lot that we live in a very polarised time, you know, whether that's politically or culturally or whatever it is. But don't lose sight of this fact. There is no idea... There is no person, there is no political party, there is no nothing in history that is more polarising than Jesus Christ. That is the dividing line. Because no one has made the claims that Jesus makes. No one taught with the authority that he taught with. No one's done the things that he did. And yet if you want to find reason to take offence at Jesus, you'll find it. And so... The question that Matthew puts before us, he's he's painting this picture of Jesus, he's he's inviting us to, to see who Jesus really is. The question he's putting before us here is, who do you want to be? Who do you want to be when it comes to Jesus? Do you want to be the person that takes offense at Jesus? Who stumbles over him? Who's scandalized by him? Scandalized by the presumptuousness of this person who shows up and does these things and says these things that make these kind of demands on you. That's my life, thank you very much. No, thank you. Do you want to follow that crowd? Because if you do, if that's what you want to do, if that's who you want to be, ultimately, Matthew is showing us, well, there's only one fate. Eternity is at stake, heaven and hell is at stake. Or do we want to be the people who no matter how challenging it is, no matter how many people around us are scandalised that we are not scandalised, no matter how many people expect us to give up on that religion that we seem to be so committed to, no matter what we have to sacrifice, do you want to be the people who will bow the knee to Jesus, look beyond all of those reasons that might pop up in our hearts or our minds to say no to him and refuse to stumble over him? Refuse to take offence at him. One of my um, one of my great heroes in the Christian faith is a man called Polycarp. Uh, who's heard that name before? Polycarp. Oh, good, excellent. Uh, I say he's a hero. I don't know a heck of a lot about him. Uh, I know just enough because what I do know is brilliant. Uh, Polycarp was a leader in the very early church. He was uh, thought to be a disciple of John, the Apostle John, and he became a bishop of the early church. But then, as a, as a very old man. He was uh, arrested and and brought in by a a group of pagans who very much objected to the existence of the church in those early days. And Polycarp was told 
renounce your faith in Christ or it's the end for you. You're going to be burned alive until you're dead. And as a very old man, Polycarp faced the real prospect of death and he is recorded to have said these incredible words. He said, 86 years have I served him and he has done me no wrong. How then can I deny my king who saved me? And with that he was put to death. Now that is the exact opposite of taking offence at Jesus. And that is amazing courage, enough courage that it's recorded and 2,000 years later we're still talking about it. But the thing is, it's actually not that different from the kind of courage that we might need increasingly. Because increasingly our world takes offence at Jesus and sometimes in increasingly aggressive ways. And so that's why that question that Matthew's asking us really matters. Who do you want to be? Who do you want to be? When you come to look at Jesus, who do you want to be? But then as we finish, uh, let's, let's look at this uh, final part of this passage, this famous statement that Jesus makes. And it's one of those sayings of his that's kind of passed into popular usage. And I think it rounds out things well and it, it helps us just to see a little bit more of what's going on here. Verse 57, Jesus responds to what's going on around him by saying, a prophet is not without honour except in his own town and in his own home. And I have to say, I love the ending to this whole thing too. Verse 58, he did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. I like that. Oh, not many miracles, just, just knocked out a few lazy miracles. You know, not what he might normally do, but yeah, he did just a few. You know, it's, it's showing us, isn't it, that it, it's not about our faith. Fundamentally, Jesus' power does not depend on our faith. It's the opposite. Our faith depends on Jesus' power. And he can do what he wants to do. And yet, something happens in response to their lack of faith. What does this idea of a prophet without honour mean? Uh, I, I found it a hard thing to pin down in a lot of ways as I've thought about it because I think one of the issues is I can think of lots of exceptions to that rule. I can think of people who are honoured. You know, I, I don't expect that when Jay goes home on a Sunday over lunchtime, his family just mocks him mercilessly. We can check with them later. Maybe Jesse's, no, maybe, we'll see. But you know what it's like? There is a respect that we see people being afforded for preaching the truth. And yet, this principle is true, isn't it? What Jesus says is true because sometimes, as we know, the people who know us the best take the longest to see the reality, to, to see the gifts that are developing, to see the truth of what's there. But again, don't, don't forget, this is not primarily about us. This is not about whether people see how brilliant we are if they've known us for a long time. This is about Jesus. This is about people failing to see the prophet when he came to his hometown, the prophet of God, come among his people and not honoured as he should have been. I do think there's a warning here for us as we think about that. And when I say us in this context, I mean particularly those of us who are very familiar with Jesus because this passage does make clear as we said right at the beginning that when it comes to Jesus familiarity can breed contempt could you become complacent over Jesus could you allow human categories of thought to creep in and to cloud the way that you're seeing him 
Could you allow something to come in and make you take offence at him? Maybe you've seen something of who Jesus is at some point in your life, but you know you still haven't responded in faith. Remember, lack of faith is the fundamental problem that these people have. Maybe you know that's you. Maybe you haven't bowed the knee to Jesus and received him as King and Saviour because you can't get past those barriers that are there. Or maybe you did that a long time ago. Maybe you've been following Jesus for a long time and yet you know that there is that danger, that complacency can creep in, that familiarity could breed contempt. And so it's worth today just pausing and looking beneath the surface, look underneath what you think you know about Jesus and see again the authority and the power not just to do things that leave us amazed, but actually to change your life, to be your refuge, to be your friend, to be your king, to be the one that you bow the knee to. And indeed, I I think this is not just individual. I think this is not just personal for us. I think we can think about the world we live in, the, the, the culture that we are part of, because you could say, in some ways, that for many decades now, Western cultures, Western civilizations like the one we live in have been Jesus' proverbial hometown. Couldn't you? You know what I mean? We're, we're thoroughly shaped by Christian thought, by Christian values, by the Bible. But how many people around us think, oh, church is boring and irrelevant. Jesus is outdated. The Bible's got nothing useful left to say. Christians are bigots. People think they know enough about Jesus, but all it is is enough to mean that they take offence at him and therefore at us. It's very painful to see that reaction and to live that reaction. And So we should pray for people we know who have taken offence at Jesus in that way. Pray that God would give us a chance to speak about Jesus in a way that actually helps them to see who he is. And who knows? Maybe in the providence of God, as we move further and further away from that Christian heritage and fewer and fewer people actually know anything about Jesus, maybe God will open doors because people won't assume that they know things about him which give them just enough to take offence at him. Maybe God will be at work among us in that way. Friends, what would you do with that time machine? What would you do if you could take it back to first century Palestine? Would that be the key? Would that unlock everything you've been looking for in the Christian life? Matthew tells us no. That would do absolutely nothing for us. When it comes to Jesus, we do not lack information. We do not lack what we need unless we lack faith. We have more than enough to respond to Jesus in faith. And so Matthew asks us, who do we want to be? Do we want to be those who will take offence? Well, if you do, you'll find plenty of people who will cheer you on and make it easy for you. But it won't get you anywhere good because it will take you away from Jesus and away from the life that he offers. Who do we want to be? Do we want to be those who trust in Jesus and find the life and the salvation that he offers? Let's pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for all that Jesus is, all that he's done for us, and all that we know about him. And Father, we pray that you would keep us from taking offence at him, 
Keep us from taking those things that we know and using those things to keep him at arm's length. Help us, Father, not just to be amazed when we look at Jesus, but instead to respond in faith, to respond with the kind of faith that Jesus demands from us, and so to know the salvation and the life that he offers. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.